Uh, I'm going to start, I, I know a few of you, maybe this is uh, going to bring back great memories, but you know, Disney kind of reasserted itself on the animation movie scene with the movie uh, Frozen a few years ago. And of course, the most famous song in Frozen was Let It Go. Little girls, and maybe older girls, and maybe a few of you guys were singing Let It Go all over the place. I like the song, it's an upbeat song, but my favorite song from Frozen is the one that Olaf sings about summer. I heard it a few times. I don't know why, but I just stream music over the internet. I have a Christmas station I was listening to, and somehow Frozen made its way into the Christmas litany. I don't know how that happened, but it did. But I didn't mind. I like this song about Olaf. You know, Olaf, he's the snowman who comes to life in the movie. And they are asking Olaf if he's had any experience with heat, and he does a little song. I will not sing it, but I will melodiously recite it for you. Olaf says, nope, but sometimes I like to close my eyes and imagine what it'd be like when summer does come. He says, bees will buzz, kids will blow dandelion fuzz, and I'll be doing whatever snow does in summer. A drink in my hand my snow up against the burning sand, probably getting gorgeously tanned in summer. I'll finally see a summer breeze blow away a winter storm and find out what happens to solid water when it gets warm. And I can't wait to see what my buddies all think of me. Just imagine how much cooler I'll be in summer. He gets really excited and does a little dance and says, the hot and the cold are both so intense. Put them together, it just makes sense. A little bit more dancing and then my favorite line, winter's a good time to stay in and cuddle, but put me in summer and I'll be a happy snowman, he says. When life gets rough, I like to hold on to my dream of relaxing in the summer sun, just letting off steam. Oh, the sky will be blue and you guys will be there too when I finally do what frozen things do in summer. I like that song. It's funny and it's clever. Every time I hear it, it makes me smile. And I don't know, I was thinking about it this week because it's a song where Olaf doesn't really say what snow does in summer. Now, because you and I, we could say it this way, I think it'll set us up for the morning, because you and I have, you could say, a deeper, a deeper wisdom we have a, an understanding. We've experienced summer. We've lived through summer. So we know what happens to frozen things in summer. We know what solid water does when it's warm, right? We know. We've experienced it. Olaf doesn't know everything. He doesn't say everything. But the song clearly, clearly says, it's clever. It's funny. He's singing about melting, even though he never actually says he's melting. And I thought it was kind of like a fun little easy intro into what we're going to do today. Uh, we're going through the book of Deuteronomy. If you're newer to Cross you, I think this is going to be a kind of, a, I don't know, it doesn't always go like it's going to go today, but we're in one of the most interesting parts of Deuteronomy to preach. Uh, we've entered into the second section. It's Deuteronomy 12 to 26. It is just law code. It's just a litany of laws. It is Moses is preaching. Deuteronomy is like four hours in the history of Israel, and he's gotten to the point where he's restating laws that we've come across in Exodus, Leviticus, or Numbers, or he's saying some new ones, or he's adding to the laws, or adjusting some laws, or he, but they've gone from people wandering in the wilderness to a people who are going to inhabit the land, the promised land. And so he's giving them the law right before they enter in, and we are actually in the law code. 
And what I want to do today is I'm going to start and give you a little bit of background because I think it's important because if there, in my experience, if there's an area of the Bible that kind of is the most understood or maybe even the least read, it's this part. It's the, you just, you skip through it, you don't understand it, it's confusing, some of it makes you uncomfortable and so you're, I don't know what this has to do. But I am of the firm conviction that all of the Bible is inspired by God and we should handle it. <laughs> And I'm also of the firm conviction that, um, and this is kind of how I'm approaching this, all of the Bible is meant to lead us to Jesus, who is our salvation in life. And if there's an area of the Bible that's probably the hardest for some people to understand and then get to Jesus with, it's this part. So I'm probably going to be a little bit more teaching-oriented than normal, but I really, there's a lot of things that I could have done with these texts that we're going to look at. But I, I really just want to try to give you this morning, and we'll do this next week, a little differently next week, but try to give you a couple good examples of a law and then how it gets kind of transformed in light of the crucified and resurrected Jesus. Or maybe even try to, te try to teach us to read the law the way Jesus did and the way Paul did and then see what Jesus, just to, I'll, I'll give you some examples, but we're going to try to learn how to read the law as a Christian today. We want to read the law with Jesus as our guide. I want to give you some rails to run on, and I want us to get to Jesus, because Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. And so we want to see how this is all fulfilled in Christ. So, First off, I told you there's these two sections, or this, the second section, chapter 12 to 26, and it's kind of 12 to 18 is kind of like love God, and, and, and 19 to 26 is kind of like love your neighbor if you kind of get into it and read through it. And I, I even want to say that some of the stuff that I will walk through this morning, you might not, it might not all just click in immediately. Some of you have been studying the Bible for a while, and so it'll make a lot of sense. Some of you, if you're newer to the faith, you just kind of listen in, and this will make sense over time as you read and interact with the Word of God in your own discipleship journey. But I was thinking back, I had in seminary, I had three professors that through the course of their classes, they said things that I just didn't understand at the time, but 15 or more years into pastoral ministry, I actually have, like the Spirit of God has brought back these classes. I've revisited notes, and I'm like, I wrote this down because the professor said it. I did not understand it at the time, but it's gold now. I mean, he was saying things that were so, I didn't understand it. One of them was, uh, I just tell you this because, it's, again, I had some awesome professor names. Dr. Willem Van Gemmeren. Don't you want to take a class with Dr. Willem Van Gemmeren? I love it. Um, he's right up there with Eckhart Schnabel in my class of all-time great professor names. Uh, Van Gemmeren, who's actually, you know, we're going through the New Living Translation, I said, partly because some of my professors were on the translating committee. Van Gemmeren was one of those who was on the translating committee. He taught me about the way of wisdom, which will intersect with what we're talking about today quite a bit. Uh, I didn't understand it at the time. I've gone back to, to my notes, and I, I think I, I, I get what he was saying, you know, almost 20 years ago now. I had a professor named Dr. Thomas McCall. I've, I've shared with you that I've been on this Jesus journey the last seven or eight years, and I'm more excited about Jesus than I've ever been. And, and really, the re some of the reason why I've been able to go on this journey, this invitation from the Spirit of God, is because of some things that Dr. McCall said in my systematic theology classes. There's a lot of ways to approach theology, but Dr. McCall was always pushing, why don't we start with Jesus? 
Why don't we start with Jesus? Jesus is the clearest revelation of who God is. Why don't we start with Jesus when we're talking about God? Not everyone approaches theology that way. And it's kind of like, yeah, that's a good idea. And as I, I mean, I, I've, you hear it in my preaching. I mean, we, we always look to Jesus. We're going to do it this, this morning. We're always looking to Jesus. But the professor I'm really trying to get at, I just wanted to talk about the other guys, is Dr. Richard Averbeck. Uh, Dr. Averbeck taught me Hebrew. He's, a, he's really a renowned scholar on the law. And I had an advisor who had said, you know, Jeff, you're in, you're in school, you, you're, you got a full, you're, you're working part-time, you know, you're married and you got a full class set, but, but you should try to audit one class a semester. You don't have to do the homework and you don't take the tests, you don't have time to do everything, but you still, you've got these professors who have spent their life studying this stuff and you're never going to have access like this again. So just sit in a class, audit it. And so I did that every semester and Dr. Averbeck was teaching, it was a PhD level class, so I had to get special permission to audit it. I'm just taking notes, but I got special permission because Dr. Averbeck taught me Hebrew. We were on good terms. And he had a class called the Old Testament Law and the Christian. And it was eye-opening to me. I'd never had anyone teach the law to me. It just, I mean, just answered some questions, raised some new ones. A lot of the ways I talk about the law come from that class. It just opened the door for me, and it, but it took me a while. I even remember, um, I remember the class where he was really beginning to lean into how do these Old Testament laws flow into the New Testament and how, how do they change. And, and I, I remember sitting there just ready for a formula. Some of you know that I was a chemical engineer as an undergrad, so very much into science. And uh, I love formula. I mean, you just get, you, as a scientist, you're just trained. This is how it's predictable. This is how things operate. You just plug it into the formula. You got, you got this data. You plug it in, and you, you, get, you get a predictable result because that's how science often works. And I wanted that with the Old Testament law. I wanted a formula that I could take these laws that sometimes are confusing or how does this apply to my life or even sometimes we'll talk about uncomfortable. And I remember Dr. Averbeck saying, there's no formula, <laughs> You've got to sit with every law, and you've got to, and we'll talk about this, you've got to meditate on the law. You've got to kind of discern the, the wisdom, the divine ideal that's under the law. And then you learn from Jesus and the other New Testament authors how, I mean, you just got to follow each law all the way through with the tabernacle, with the priestly stuff, with the way you relate with your name, all this stuff. That's, and I was like, there's 613 laws, I don't want to... Can't there just be a formula? No, you can't do it. That's just not how it works. That's not how God wanted to go about making us people of wisdom. And it's part of the way that, I mean, I told you, Israel's been under the oppression of Pharaoh in Egypt, and God is forming them to be a new kind of people. And so he's giving them this law, and and what's meant to happen is the law doesn't cover, because life is complex, right? So the law doesn't cover everything, and so we're given this law, and then we're meant, I mean, it's the people of God, to meditate on the law, to learn the wisdom of the law, so that no matter what circumstance may come our way, we can handle it with wisdom, the wisdom of our God. And the big picture of it in the Old Testament, if you read the whole Old Testament, right, is that the nations would look at Israel and say, nobody lives that wisely. Man, this world's a dark place, but Israel's a light in the darkness, Let's go to Jerusalem and learn from their God because there's no one like Yahweh. I mean, this is all over the prophets. It all starts in the law and meditating on the law. Uh, in, in, in case you, uh, you haven't heard, the, the, we don't read this like, I mean, it's more than just a law code that you obey. It's, 
there's wisdom underneath. And I really do think this is why Jesus feels so free. I mean, obviously, his crucifixion and resurrection changes things. We get a new covenant. Things are transformed through him. But I really think it's the way Jesus was reading the law as a rabbi in the first century. He was helping people see. No, it's not just about murder. It's about hate in your heart. No, it's not just about adultery. We'll talk about adultery. It's not just about adultery. It's about lust in your heart. What's the wisdom underneath? What's the divine ideal? And, and you read it and you meditate on it and, and you follow it through and you see where it leads. I also know that some of you will want to go, maybe some of you won't, and that's fine, but some of you are more academically inclined and may want to go a little bit deeper. Uh, one of the books that makes a huge argument about the understanding this idea of there's understanding underneath each law is uh, John Walton's book. It's a newer book called The Lost World of Torah. Uh, Dr. Walton is a professor at Wheaton. He's written a few books on the lost world of ancient, ancient cultures. And uh, again, it's not a textbook, but it's, it's pretty focused. It's, there's no fun stories in it. In other words, it's ancient Near Eastern law. But, but he's arguing firmly that, the, that this law code is really wisdom literature, and we are to meditate on it. I'm also... Uh, grateful to the Bible Project. There's in their Deuteronomy podcast, they have three lectures on the law, and I found them very helpful. Uh, just to help you kind of get a get a feel for this, I'm going to read two verses from Psalm 119. If you've never set, read Psalm 119, set aside about an hour. It's like the longest psalm. It takes a long time. Not really an hour, but it's a longer psalm. The, the psalmist is just celebrating the law, meditating on the law, and just rejoicing over the beauty and the wisdom of the law. And the psalmist says things like this in verse 18, open my eyes to see the wonderful truths in your instruction. Or in verse 34, give me understanding and I will obey your instructions and I will put them into practice with all my heart. I think these are interesting verses because there's a piece of me that says, man, this is just law code. I'm more like, God, give me the will to obey, right? Give me the will or the courage or the humility. But, but the psalmist, no, no, give me understanding. Help me understand the divine ideal underneath the command so that I can live this out of my heart, which again is really how Jesus taught the law. I also want to say this because we are going to look at, and I'm going to call it out just because I want us to be wise and healthy readers of the Old Testament. Some of the stuff you're going to feel uncomfortable about. You're like, is that, how could that be a part of the law? Again, let me say it again. The laws have a divine ideal underneath them, which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. He's our ultimate teacher and giver of the law. And I also think when you're trying to interpret these, because I actually think Israel had more than 613 laws, but these are the ones that the biblical authors decided to include, and they are very much connected to the surrounding narrative. And so it is helpful to be reading through the whole story as you're trying to meditate on these laws and understand them. And even, I don't know that we'll look at this next week or not, I don't think we will, but there's even a place in the Gospels where Jesus is directly questioned about a law from Deuteronomy, and he responds with a story from Genesis. Again, we often see the divine ideal in Genesis, and so it's very common. You run into a question in Deuteronomy or another part, you go back. Jesus went back to Genesis. But I, I want you to hear this too before we read one. The laws of the Torah are given to Israel thousands of years ago, and they were a messed up people. And so some of the law is God accommodating a messed up people. 
again, even if you read through Jesus responding to some of the challenges he got about laws from Deuteronomy, he will tell you, no, 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 this concession was made because of the hardness of your heart. It's not the divine ideal here. This is the concession. The divine ideal is underneath the law. If you meditate on it, you will see it. But this concession is made because Israel's heart was hard. Because you were so intoxicated by violence. This is just where I, 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 I mean, I'm just trying. It's almost like damage control. I mean, you follow through. Israel just, keep, Israel just keeps failing. I mean, you read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's like law-given, Israel failure. Law-given, Israel failure. Which again is why Jesus becomes our teacher of the law because he succeeds everywhere Israel fails. And so we can trust him as he teaches us the law. So it's, the law is God's wisdom, but it also takes into account the limits of his covenant partners. And again, I think as we learn from Jesus, we are called to meditate on the laws of the Torah and discern the wisdom underneath. So let's get into this. That's a little bit of background, just something to hang your hat on. Let's jump to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. We're just going to read one verse, one law. It's pretty straightforward, but I, I specifically picked laws where there's a clear counterpart in the New Testament because we're learning this and I want it to be relatively clear. I'll just read it and then I'll I'll, I'll make some comments. If a man is discovered committing adultery, and notice how this is set up because this will be important when we jump to John's gospel. If a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you will purge Israel of such evil. Now again, let me just call this out. If you're like me, you read through it and you're like, yes, there should be something done about adultery. It's not good. It's a problem. It's, it's a sign of something's gone wrong. It's a horrible thing. But they must die. I mean, is there anything in you that's like, I'm a little uncomfortable with that? That capital punishment for that? That's pretty intense. I mean, it's pretty intense. What, 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 do, we, what do we do with that? And even submit to you that maybe for Israel that wouldn't sound weird at all, but for you and I that sounds weird because guess what? (laughs) More has happened in salvation history, and what do we say about Jesus? He's the clearest expression. He's the ultimate revelation. He's the fulfillment of the law, and so you and I sit at a time when more has been revealed about who God is and what he's doing in the world. And so it's actually possible that you're not comfortable with this part of the Bible because you've read later in the Bible, (laughs) and you've read what Jesus has had to say. And you, maybe you've probably even read the passage we're about to read. It's a very popular, famous passage. But again, this is why I say this is why we always go into the Old Testament with Jesus as our guide. Because we might read it. It might not make, might not make sense. We might be confused. You've got to do a little bit of work to try to get into the... You've got to do time travel a little bit. And then, again, we're meditating on the divine ideal. So let's jump to John chapter 8. Very, very well-known passage. Deeply tied to Deuteronomy 22.22. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and he taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And they put her in front of the crowd and said, Teacher, to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? 
Uh, first, let's again, let's do a little time travel. Why are they stoning her? Well, because again, it's different. They had a different political way of arranging themselves. They had a different banking system, a different economic system, a different kind of police system, a different kind of court system. Like, you got to do a little bit of work to time travel. They don't, it's not just like you translate our world to their world. It's different. And because they were following the law, stoning someone meant that nobody was a murderer. You get 20, 30, 40 people, I don't know, you, everybody throws a stone. You don't know what actually ends somebody's life. And so that's just the way that that was practiced. It's a little primitive. That's what they did. But I, I want to point out, and I kind of reread Deuteronomy 22, 22, so that you can see that, that this isn't really about justice to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. It's not really about justice. I mean, you know this. This is one, I mean, this is another day, but this is one of the reasons why Paul will talk about why the law was good. It was a gift. It, it gave wisdom. There was a divine ideal, under, but, it, but it was incomplete. It, it was weak, and this is why the, the spirit is better, because laws can get manipulated, can't they? Often by people in power, and places of power, they can manipulate laws for their own benefits. Or even it can happen in some societies, right, where, I mean, if you read through the Deuteronomy laws, they're very focused on the vulnerable, but it's also possible for the vulnerable to find ways to take advantage of laws as well, too. So laws can get manipulated. They can be used for other purposes. It's totally happening here because what did Deuteronomy 22, 22? It starts with the man. Right here in John 8, this woman was caught in adultery. Where's the man? <laughs> Where is? I mean, they, they don't bring the man. They just bring the woman. So they're clearly playing games. They have, it's not about justice. They have other agendas. And so, I mean, verse 6, they're trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stoops down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. I, I don't even know how many sermons or lectures I've heard on this particular, like, people guessing, what is Jesus writing? And I've probably heard as many guesses on, on what he's writing as sermons or lectures I've heard on this text. Some more compelling than others. But as I was reflecting on Deuteronomy and even how I'm, I was like, I wonder, I wonder. I mean, we don't know. I wonder if he's writing out Deuteronomy 22, 22. Because that's what they're bringing. They're bringing this woman with this law in mind. I wonder if he's like writing it out and prayerfully engaging with the Father. Okay, I'm about to teach on this, Father. What is the wisdom, right? Let's teach the true law, right? It's what he's, he's writing something out, and he's taking his good old time. I mean, he's not in a hurry. Jesus is rarely on your time schedule, just a reminder. And I said that because verse 7, they keep, they keep demanding an answer. Like, come on. Well, I'm just, let me finish what I'm writing. And then he stands up. He says, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he just, mic drop, gets back down and starts writing in the sand again. It's this crazy, powerful moment. And it, I mean, it had an effect. When the, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest right, which says something, right? Usually as we age, we get more and more honest about our own failures. And eventually Jesus is the only one left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Don't even one of them, didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. All right, so clearly Jesus is interpreting Deuteronomy 22:22 in a different kind of way. Kind of getting at what I would say is the true wisdom, the divine ideal underneath the law. 
So let me walk us through this a little bit. Jesus' mercy, I want to be clear up front, Jesus' mercy does not mean he's condoning adultery. Jesus says he doesn't condemn her, but he's also not saying it's okay. He's not saying go do whatever you want. He's saying that she made a choice that leads to death. But what Jesus is doing, and it has to be Jesus, this is all about Jesus, who he is, he is giving her the gift of life instead of death. And he's not going to execute her. That's what's what's playing out. Jesus sees himself as fulfilling some deeper ideal of divine generosity. This deeper wisdom underneath the law that, that God is merciful And that he wants to give life even to those who have made choices that lead to death. I think that's one of the things that is happening with these, because there's several uh, commandments in the law in the Old Testament that have capital punishment as a consequence. And I think what what, what it's saying is, is that these kinds of behaviors, these kinds of sins, these kinds of rebellions against God, these lead to death. That's the, that's, the, that's the consequence. It leads to death. And Jesus is embodying, it seems, a principle that's even deeper than, than the law and death. A simple principle that God is gracious and merciful to humanity and continues to offer us all a chance to choose life. Go and sin no more. Adultery, that's, that's the way of death. That is going to bring wreckage to you and all around you. And because it's Jesus, he can come to her and say, look, I'm giving you an opportunity here. Confess and repent and choose life. And choose life. And again, because Jesus does this in other places, I think this is where we are encouraged. Okay, so we go to, to, to Genesis to try to understand this. So let's think to the beginning story of Genesis where wisdom is first introduced, right? You have the tree of life and you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the intent is don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, I want to make you wise, but I want to walk you down a path of wisdom. I want to teach wisdom on my time. I want you to receive wisdom as a gift from me. Even in the Bible, wisdom and patience just go hand in hand. But what happens? Adam and Eve have no patience, and they would rather decide for themselves what is beneficial and what is harmful. So what do they do? They take from the tree. They seize wisdom for themselves. That's what they do. Take it. I'll decide for myself, God. Thank you very much. And and what does God say? When When you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. But what happens in the in the Genesis account? When they eat, do they immediately die? No. They don't immediately die. What what actually happens is God shows them mercy and mercifully exiles them from the Garden of Eden because once they've sinned, they are now in a state of death and corruption. (laughs) And so God doesn't want them to live forever in a state of death and corruption. He's going to unveil his whole plan to rescue all of us from our sin and death and corruption and so he acts, but he, but he doesn't kill them immediately, right? Adam and Eve live quite a bit longer. But they'll surely die because they ate. they're now on this pathway that leads to death. And I feel like that's what Jesus is enacting in John chapter 8. There's this deeper wisdom. Yes, any sin is going to lead you to death. But Jesus comes to all of us, right? We know the story of Jesus on the cross for us. He comes to all, I've come so that you don't have to 
You don't have to exist in death, but you can enter into life. It's an invitation. I told you I could do, I could really do two sermons this morning. So I could stop here. I'm not going to because I'm trying to give you some examples, but I will. I will just reinforce that this is good news because you and I are, we're lawbreakers too. And maybe right now the Spirit of God is convicting. I mean, maybe that's why you came. Sometimes we come to church because we got something heavy. And maybe that's why you came this morning, because there's something heavy that you need to confess. Maybe just to God right now, maybe to someone else before you leave. But here's what I know of Jesus, that because it's Jesus, you don't have to go straight to death. He is actually coming to you, offering mercy and forgiveness and giving you a chance to rethink everything in light of him and enter into his life. Do not turn down that invitation. (laughs) Step into the life of Jesus. You don't know anyone like him. There is no one like him. We've all messed up. But one of the beauties of our God is you don't clean yourself up and then come to him. He meets you right where you are. He hangs on a bloody cross for you so that you can know life through him. So that's the first law. We could do more with that. But I'm going to go to another one that, that is going to make you feel, it's like, man, it's a little uncomfortable. I don't, I don't like that that's in here. But again, we're looking for the divine ideal. And and again, I think it gets laid out for us in the New Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 12 to 18. Let me just read this through. If a fellow Hebrew sells himself or herself to be your servant and serves you for six years, in the seventh year you must set that servant free. In other words, again, different kind of banking system, different kind of economy. You're working your field, you have a bad season for a variety of reasons, and you fall behind, and you need to take out a loan, and you fail on your loan. Well, this is kind of like a baked-in welfare system for the Israelite people, and so you could sell yourself into service for, this says, seven years. When you release a male servant, do not send him away empty-handed. Give him a generous farewell gift from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Share with him some of the bounty with which the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were once slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I am giving you this command. Again, the narrative echoes through these laws. What have we been saying? They were under the oppression of fear, and they have been free. So, um, I feel like in an elevator. Um, so, so God doesn't want them to repeat, and I just can't wander as much now, so I'll give your next break. God doesn't want them to repeat that, and so, so he's trying to form them into a different kind of people. And so, so the Israelites might be like, what, a limit, seven years, that's not fair. I served way longer that when I was a slave in Egypt. But you and I read that, and we might be like, what, seven years, that seems harsh. I can't imagine somebody defaulting on a loan and I make them my slave for seven years. That seems... But again, we've read a little bit more in the scriptures, haven't we? And Jesus has revealed some stuff to us. And so we go back and we read the Old Testament with Jesus as our guide. And I also think the narrative echoes through this. So, so even if you remember the story of the Israelites leaving Egypt, the Egyptians blessed them on their way out. And so God's saying, well, just like you were blessed, you bless someone on their way out. Uh, when, when you release, uh, yeah, I read that. So verse 16, but suppose your servant says, I will not leave you because 
He loves you and your family. This is kind of like this unique experience to think about. He loves you and your family. He's done well with you. There's this love in this relationship. In that case, take an all and push it through his earlobe and into the door. And after that, he will be your servant for life. And that's pretty critical too. And it's the same for female servants. Male and female servants. Treat them both the same. Equal. You must not consider it a hardship when you release your servants. Uh, This should even echo for you the story when the Israelites were being freed from slavery in Egypt. It was a hardship for Pharaoh, was it not? His heart was hard. Well, God's like, that's not you. You're not like Pharaoh. You're different. I want you to be a different kind of people. It's not a hardship for you to release your servants. Remember that for six years they've given you services worth double the wages of hired workers, and the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. It's one of these interesting things that you read through the Old Testament law, and we're going to read a few New Testament passages too. The Bible never says slavery should be abolished. It doesn't say it. It's almost like that Olaf song. It doesn't say it, but it's actually pretty clear what he's singing about. The Bible never says it should be abolished, but if you read through what the Bible has to say about slavery and what is going on, it totally undermines the practice. The Old Testament fully recognizes the inconsistency of the enslavement of Israelites with the fundamental freedom and equality of all of God's people, whom he redeemed from slavery in Egypt. As you read through it, it seems the legislation accepts the fact of slavery, but treats it as an abnormality to be minimized as far as possible. Again, God making a concession because of the hardness of human hearts of greed, because of violence. So while not actually abolishing an institution which was universal in the ancient world, the Old Testament law did considerably humanize and even undermine it as a result of Israel's experience of liberation from Egypt. So as you follow, if you follow, if you meditate on these and you follow the divine ideal and the trajectory, you see what, what the heart is behind this. But it gets really clear in the New Testament. Paul has a few things to say about the way slaves and masters should treat one another now that Christ has been revealed. I mean, Paul was as Pharisee as you could get. He probably would have been one of the Pharisees with a stone in hand in front of Jesus in John chapter 8. He would have been that kind of guy. But this is a few years later, right? And Paul, Paul has had a paradigm shift after meeting the risen Christ. And he's rethought everything in light of Christ, who Christ is, Christ on the cross, Christ resurrected, and the things that Jesus taught. So one of the things that Jesus taught we find in Luke chapter 22, verses 26 to 27. Jesus says this, among you, it will be different, which is kind of a theme I'm trying to drive all the way through this Deuteronomy series. The people of God are supposed to be different, but not in the ways of human wisdom and in the ways of God's revealed wisdom that we wouldn't know if he hadn't shown us. Among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? He says the one who sits at the table, of course, but not here, not here because I am among you and I am among you as one who serves. That's what Jesus says. 
So in other words, as Jesus is trying to call us into a new community, the church, the people of God, instead of replacing a model of society in which there are masters and slaves with a model in which everyone is his own master, right, which is what Adam and Eve wanted all the way back in Eden, Jesus and the early church replaced it with a model in which everyone is the servant or the slave of one another. In other words, our free, and we've talked about how does freedom come out of obedience to a law. Our freedom is expressed in our voluntary service. And as we are freed from our enslavement to sin and death, we are freed not to choose whatever we want. What did I say a couple weeks ago? We are actually freed by the power of the risen Lord to choose what is good. On our own, there's not a great chance we'll choose that. But as we're shaped in the way of love, in the way of wisdom, as we're washed by the blood of Christ, as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are free to choose what is good. And we are free to serve one another. So let's see what Paul then does with this in a couple places. Ephesians chapter 6, he's kind of wrapping up what is called a household code, which in many ways Paul is trying to subvert the culture with what he does with these. Just look at what he does with the slaves. Because slavery was amazing. I mean, Slavery was like this big, dark, ugly secret of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was fueled by slavery. And Paul's writing in the midst of it in the first century. Slaves, he's trying to, you know, you have slaves and masters because Christ, you're all welcomed in. But he's trying to help the slaves find life. Obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. And pay attention to the language. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Again, this only works because Christ is the fulfillment of the law. It only works because of Jesus. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. I mean, again, for the fourth time, remember that the Lord, I mean, it's all about Jesus, will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Paul, Paul knows that what he's asking is crazy unless Jesus Christ is Lord, and then it makes perfect sense in Paul's mind. Now, that part is kind of maybe challenging, but what is revolutionary is what Paul says in the next verse. <laughs> I mean, this is revolutionary. He's addressed the slaves. Now, now he addresses masters, and this could only be Christian masters, you understand. Who else would do this? Treat your slaves in the same way. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they were watching. I mean, this is radical, crazy. Remember, you both have the same, oh, don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven. And what does Paul say? He has no favorites. It's radical. You know, last week I talked about when it snows, the kingdom of God is like a snowstorm. It comes quietly one snowflake at a time. You know, when I say that the Bible, maybe it doesn't say that slavery needs to be abolished, but it undermines slavery. Every Christian master who treated their slave as a brother or sister and set them free was one snowflake falling at a time, bringing beauty to the whole landscape. It gets even clearer then in Philemon. I don't know if you've read Philemon. Super short little letter that Paul writes. And if you're new, I mean, if you're new to your New Testament, you, just, you flip right by it and you don't even know. It's just like one page. 
And I'll, I'll read through this relatively quickly, but I, I'd love for you to just go back and read through it on your own and, and just even watch the way Paul is wrestling with this. I mean, the language he uses is so intentional. But in Paul's mind, there's a divine ideal that is so clear in the law and in Jesus, even more so now. And it's obvious the trajectory of where this leads. But he's going to be even, but even, even the strong, authoritative Paul is gentle with Philemon, one snowflake at a time. Philemon is a man who knew Paul through the church, and he was a slave owner. And his slave Onesimus had run away. He was in Rome, and he found Paul was in Rome in prison. Did you see me catch that? That was awesome. He found Paul was in Rome in, in prison. And so he goes to meet with Paul. And, and so Paul is writing to Philemon about Onesimus coming to be with him. He says, I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. I even have this like Deuteronomy 15 passage in my mind about being generous when you release somebody from their service to you. He says, I'm praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith. I just, it's in there. As you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. Which is why I'm boldly asking a favor of you. I could, de I could demand it in the name of Christ because it is clearly the right thing for you to do. It is a good thing. This is choosing good. But because of our love, I prefer simply to ask you. You're free to choose. In Christ, you're now free to choose what's good. Consider this as a request for me, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child, Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, but now he is very useful to both of us. I'm sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. I wanted to keep him here with me while I, while I am in these chains for preaching the good news, and he would have helped me on your behalf, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help because you were willing, not because you were forced. It seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so that you could have him back forever. Listen to this. He's no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, and I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Yes, my brother, please do this favor for the Lord's sake. Because of Jesus, the only reason we would do it, give me this encouragement in Christ. And Paul says, I am confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. And I will tell you, there's, there's no historical documentation that Philemon set Onesimus free, but I guarantee you he did. <laughs> because there is no way the early church would have circulated this letter unless they also had the story. Philemon did it. Philemon, he's one of these new Christian masters who treats, who serves his, he serves his servants. He, he's like crazy, like he takes Jesus at his word and obeys. And he says he's experiencing life like he never has before. He's being set free from the bondage of sin and death, from the powers and principalities. Philemon's got a story to tell. Pass this around all the churches and read it. 
This is Paul reflecting on the law, teaching us the divine ideal about where this all leads in Christ. So what I want to say this morning, all Scripture finds its fulfillment in Christ. And, I, and I'm growing more and more confident in this. If we can't see Jesus in it, we need to sit with it longer. We need to sit with it longer. Because Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. And I'm really learning this on my Jesus journey. If you read the Bible through the lens of Jesus, it gets better and better. If you can interpret all the scripture in the light of the crucified and risen Christ, I mean, this book just comes alive. It's not boring to read. I actually had someone after first service say, Jeff, while you were preaching, I was reading other laws. Like, this is, this is interesting. Now, no, 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 no. I am not saying that we need to become a church full of Old Testament law scholars, right? Whew. You don't even have to read through the Old Testament law every year. I mean, if you want to, go for it. But I will say this. You should read through it from time to time. You should at least read through it enough to be confused by it. You need, you need to know the word of God. All of it is profitable. But we want to learn together as a church, how do, we, how do we meditate on this for wisdom from God, divine wisdom? How do we see Christ in this? How is Christ leading us to himself? Because he's the fulfillment of all of this. And where are we going to find life? We are only going to find life in Jesus. Amen? All right, let's pray. Uh, God, we covered a lot of ground this morning, lots to think about, and I, I don't want people to get lost in the weeds. What I want us to hear this morning is that this, this, this book that we have in front of us is a gift from you, and, and the gift is that it leads us to you, and we want to be healthy, mature readers of the word, and we want to be driven into your presence. Because we know on our own, left to our own, quote-unquote, wisdom, we're really a bunch of fools. And we keep seeing choices in front of us that we think lead to life that only lead to death. Again and again, we just make decisions that lead further into death. And so, Jesus, we need you daily, hourly, moment by moment, to be, to be coming to us and guiding us and leading us deeper into your life, saving us from ourselves, leading us out of death, leading us into life. We want to be a church that's full of life. And to do that, we need to be full of you, Jesus. So we are open, we are ready, we are humble, Jesus. Speak, for we are listening. And fill us with your spirit. In your name we pray, amen.